Welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sally Becker. And I'm Mark Dunlake. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a report on the recent rally in Schenectady to support railroad workers. Then, for our peace bucket, we hear about the record break in, once again, record break in United States military budget. Uh, we then have a live interview with Rabbi Zalman, Zalman Simon, uh, about the second annual Hanukkah on J celebration in front of Schenectady City Hall on December 18th. Uh, after that, Breyer Barthel gives us an update on happenings at the uh, Landsberg Public Library. And we finish with a live interview with uh, Saratoga Blacks Live Matters about their first books and lunch events in the Capital District this holiday season. But first, headlines. The Times Union reports that John Hinckley Jr., who attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan in 1981 and has been touring as a musician since being released from court supervision over the summer, has canceled a January concert that was to be held in someone's basement in Albany, Albany's student neighborhood. Earlier dates on his tour, begun since he was released in June, following 40 years of psychiatric detention, which were sold out. But many venues canceled Hinckley's performances after receiving threats along with other safety concerns. Rensselaer County Executive Steve McLaughlin announced that he is being treated for prostate cancer. McLaughlin is scheduled to start trial in six weeks on felony charges of allegedly misusing campaign funds and falsifying campaign financial reports. Many of his close political allies are caught up in the local election fraud case, which has already resulted in several guilty pleas and indictments, with more expected. The Justice Center recently criticized the county legislature for reappointing one of those indicted individuals, Jason Schofield, to continue as a Republican commissioner on the Board of Elections. The winter storm moving across the central United States could drop up to 15 inches of snow in parts of the Adirondacks and Catskills starting Thursday night. Only about five inches is expected in the Capital District, though more is expected in higher elevations. The Time Union reports that a citizen lawsuit against a public nuisance landfill in Rochester will help define what the recently passed so-called Green State Constitutional Amendment actually means. The amendment says that each person shall have a right to clean air and water and a healthful environment. They say, the plaintiffs, that right is far stronger than the Department of Environmental Conservation's regulations, which promotes mitigation. Everyone will be watching to see how the expansion of rights is interpreted in the courts. The rate of inmates dying from drug overdoses in New York's prisons is more than double that of the nation according to a recent report by the state attorney general's office on deaths of individuals in custody. The, the death rate has surged in the last two years, with more than half due to fentanyl. The study called for focus on prevention and det det detection methods, though it also cited failures in enforcing current rules. 
The Capital District is one of 12 regional clean energy hubs that will share $52 million in state climate funding over a number of years to serve as centers of outreach, awareness, and education to help households sign up for the various state clean energy programs, such as air heat pumps and energy retrofits. The Affordable Housing Partnership, based in Albany's Sheridan Hollow, is the lead partner in the local effort to help meet the greenhouse uh, gas emissions reduction goals laid out in the CLCPA, the state's climate law. That's it for headlines. For our first segment, several rail unions and railroad workers united called for solidarity events on Tuesday, December 14th. Mark talks with the, the IWW about the event they organized in Schenectady. We're joined today by Greg Giorgio, uh, who is a, a longtime uh, labor activist in the Capital District uh, with the uh, uh, the Wobblies International Workers of the World. And he's also part of the uh, support group for, um, I believe it's called Railroad Workers United, but he'll correct that. Uh, on, on Tuesday, they held a, a, a rally uh, to support the railroad workers uh, over in uh, Amtrak and Schenectady. So, so, so Greg, what uh, motivated you to pull this uh, rally uh, together? Well, I, uh, Mark, as a long time, and by the way, it's industrial workers of the world, <laughs> but uh, as a long time, uh, supporter of Railroad Workers United and as a, one of their uh, non-rail union members, what they call a solidarity member, I've, I've been involved with them for over 14 years. Um, and I do a news feed for them weekly on the web. Um, and, you know, staying on top of the railroad and transportation news has been a very interesting uh, evolution over the last six months or so as the rail union contract negotiations were coming uh, to a, a point of some kind of resolution and or failure, really. And so in the midst of what happened with the uh, federal imposition by the president, <clears throat> excuse me, and the Congress uh, of what was really an unfair uh, labor agreement pretty much totally ignored the demands of the rail workers and their unions. I felt uh, when the call went out by some of the unions and Railroad Workers United for solidarity actions for Tuesday, December 13th, that I would be there and I would help uh, rally other people in the cause as well. So that's what we did uh, via the uh, working uh, machinery of the upstate New York IWW. Now, the president, of course, along with Congress, um, you know, declared basically that, uh, you know, the railroad strike would be illegal and force them to accept, you know, uh, an agreement largely that they had, you know, previously rejected. How has, you know, what are the issues that the uh, railroad workers are really trying to, uh, you know, focus upon that, you know, the media and politicians really haven't uh, owned up to? First of all, it, it became um, a, a very simplistic uh, argument about whether or not railroad workers deserved um, more sick time, uh, paid sick leave benefit type time. 
Uh, and of course, that's not really a question. Of course, they deserve and should be entitled to that. They still don't have it. Um, and while it's an important part of the many pieces of what railroad workers are looking at for their future and what bothers them in the present tense, um, the main issue that has totally been set aside is the corporate greed of the class one freight railroads and their use of stock buybacks to create a banking institution out of their revenue rather than um, a supply and demand uh, business that provides goods and services. And, and they've created an unfair draconian system of attendance policies that keeps railroad workers working 12, 14, 16 hour shifts, no days off, often more than seven days a week uh, in a row, um, working sometimes back-to-back -back shifts where they have as little as two or three hours of sleep. They're literally on call 365 days a year in the operating crafts of the of the railroads. And and the railroad workers, that's one of the more uh, dangerous jobs in the United States, is it? You know, those are big, you know, machines that you're trying to move around in all type of weather conditions and, you know, injury rate pretty high. You know, that that safety issue did not seem to get a lot of media attention. No, in the history of the safety issue, Mark, when I was a kid in the 60s and early 70s, hanging around the local New York Central and what became the Penn Central Railroad tracks in my neighborhood, train crews had two men in a boxcar, two men in the caboose, I should say, as conductor staff, and two men in the locomotive, four trainmen. It used to be five before that. Now the railroads are pushing for one. And in some cases, that is the operating standard for certain railroads on certain lines. It's a, it's a public safety issue. They're running longer and longer trains. Um, it is a very dangerous job statistically and historically. And railroad workers are, are trying to fight for that issue because the, even the Surface Transportation Board of the U.S. Department of Transportation says that one and two person crews are questionable. Now, I, I remember when I was a young community organizer for, for ACORN out in Des Moines, Iowa, um, back in the mid 70s, one of the uh, issues that we were working on a lot was the issue of, of freight trains, because in the Midwest, uh, where I was based, uh, they were not maintaining the railroad lines. And there were often derailments at uh, crossings, even in cities like uh, Des Moines, Iowa. Fortunately, most of the derailments, you know, were corn. Um, but, uh, you know, that was, you know, half a century ago. And I also remember that Barry Commoner in his 1980 uh, campaign for president talked about nationalizing at least the railroad tracks. So, in fact, uh, like we do with the highways. So I understand one of the issues that the railroad workers have been pushing has been the whole issue of nationalization. Uh, how has how that progressed? And, and what are other things that the Railroad Workers United, you know, are continuing to do, you know, moving forward? Uh, that is one of the main issues. And it's, it's also um, uh, tied uh, back to that whole um, idea about how the big class one freight railroads are, are not using their 
increased profits at almost record rates in many cases to reinvest in their own infrastructure. So rail crossings and, and a lot of the rail infrastructure is failing. And um, Railroad Workers United and some of the more uh, forward-looking uh, members of some of the crafts in the, in the industry are advocating for public ownership. Now, I would say in all honesty, Mark, at this time, that that's not a front and center issue among most railroaders, but uh, it, is, it is not an issue that's gonna go away because the continued problems of the profit taking without the infrastructure building are gonna make this system collapse. And this is an industry, my understanding, that it's not like the freight companies are are broke. It seems like actually uh, they're doing quite well in terms of revenues. Yes. And they created, you know, over the last number of years, they slashed nearly 30 percent of their workforce to create, you know, um, a higher profit margin capability. Um, and again, the, the issue of stock buybacks rather than reinvestment uh, in infrastructure and, and really just the whole idea that your workers are expendable as people who are doing the jobs of 30 percent, you know, with 30 percent less staffing. And frankly, people are leaving the industry uh, because of the stress of the lifestyle. And it's hard to hire railroaders because even though the pay is pretty good, Mark, it's not that great to assume that people are going to want to take on that kind of lifestyle. So, so we have just about a, a minute left. Um, so I'll give you a couple last questions. You know, what else are the industrial workers of the world working on? If people want to either get support the work of the railroad workers or get more information, how best can they do that? Um, railroad workers information is best uh, best access that www.railroadworkersunited.org um, and there's a lot of stuff on their website including their you can subscribe to their weekly news feed uh, the upstate new york iww is available on the web if you just do an upstate new york regional iww search you can find our website and if you need to get a hold of me i'm a ggwob 56 at yahoo.com. Thank you very much, Greg Giorgio, uh, IWW, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This is uh, at least the third segment we have done on the railroad uh, workers uh, strike situation. Uh, you can check that out at mediasanctuary.org. Uh, uh, we often have a labor bucket with uh, Willie Terry on Thursdays. Um, and we will certainly continue to provide updates on the railroad worker situation. For this week's Peace Bucket, Mark talks with Lindsay Koshgarian, Director of National Priorities Project, about the recent $858 billion military budget adopted by Congress, even larger than what, was, than what President Biden had asked for. We're joined for our Peace Bucket by uh, Lindsay Kashkarian, who is a, um, with the uh, National Priorities um, Project, part of the uh, Institute for uh, Policy Studies. And as happens every year, the United States Congress is about to pass um, a, a, a record um, defense budget, 
you know, formally around $858 billion, much more if you include um, everything. And as often is the case, uh, the House, the Congress is trying to give a $45 billion increase above even what President um, um, Biden put on the table. So, Lindsay, why is this not a good idea? I mean, we're fighting this war in Ukraine. Oh, I guess we're not fighting it, but, you know, that's adding on to our expense, isn't that what's driving this budget increase? No, it's it's not what's driving this budget increase at all, Mark. And the fact is, these budget increases have been ongoing, you know, since before um, the war in Ukraine. And um, and the amount of money that the U.S. is spending on the war in Ukraine is still only in the tens of billions of dollars. So, you know, we're talking about less than 10 percent of this current budget is is how much we've been spending. And this $858 billion that you referred to doesn't even include money that we'll spend uh, on the war in Ukraine this year. So in including that, it'll go even higher. Um, but what this is, is a longstanding pattern that we've seen of spending more and more on the Pentagon, um, even while we see programs like the uh, expanded child tax credit that helped cut child poverty in half was discontinued by Congress this year. It was a tremendously successful program, and it could have been funded for about half the cost of the increase um, that, as you said, the House gave um, over President Biden's budget request for the Pentagon this year. So it's really a question of extremely mispri misplaced priorities and who's wielding the power in Congress. Now, I was one of the people who, you know, thought it'd be a great idea if uh, the president and Congress came up with a lot of money um, for uh, climate. And, you know, my recollection is we we're talking about a couple hundred, you know, billion dollars spread out over a 10 year period. And yet we often hear, you know, you mentioned the child care tax credit, but, you know, whether it's, it's climate or housing or environmental protection, you know, we always say there's not enough money. The budget's too tight. We got a budget deficit. And yet when it comes to the military, that doesn't seem to be the case. That's right. It doesn't seem to be the, the case at all. You hear this, the same members of Congress you see refusing to vote for higher spending on renewable energy, the same members you see refusing to continue the child tax credit expansion that was so successful, um, are the same folks who are voting to increase this budget. And it's a simple question of who they're accountable to. Half of this budget, about half every year goes to Pentagon contractors. It's a, they're a, it's a huge industry. They have more lobbyists than there are members of Congress. They spread jobs across every single congressional district, and it's a it's a um, that's who the members of Congress are are accountable to. Um, but you know we can change that if we if we make them accountable to us instead. But they have to hear about it from us. Now, one of the things that a little bit startled me, what, you know, recently read wasn't startled by the fact that once again the Pentagon, you know, failed to be able to account for its money when it comes, you know, came for an audit. But what startled me was how much money they could not, you know, account for. It's like the three point five trillion dollars or something of what they call assets. You know, they were missing, you know, 55, 60 percent of that. They couldn't account for it. Uh, you certainly get the impression that a lot of money is being spent, but it's not clear, you know, where it's ending up. And then, of course, when you come to weapon sales, you do know that many of the weapons, in fact, end up in the black market and actually often end up arming the very, you know, political and military forces we claim that we are opposing on the field. 
Yes, Mark. So what you're referring to is the fact that the Pentagon just failed its fifth audit in a row. Uh, it has never passed one. Every other major government agency has passed an audit. And what that means is that the Pentagon doesn't know where its money goes. Like you said, out of three and a half trillion dollars in assets, that includes things like property, buildings, weapons, um, equipment. They were able to account for less than half of what they had. Um, only about a little less than 40% actually is, is how much they were able to account for. So that means that they have that much money, trillions of dollars that they have spent that they don't know where it went or where those assets are. Um, and that's that should be a huge problem. And you know, the fact that no other agency has had this problem has been has completely failed to pass an audit is very much a function of how huge the Pentagon is and how spread out it is. Um, it has dozens of, of smaller agencies within itself of, of offices and, and programs and uh, and that, you know, aren't talking to each other. It has 750 military installations all over the world. All of that is equipment that needs to be count, accounted for. And like you said, some of that is weapons that end up in hands that we don't intend them to be in. Um, of course, there's also the separate problem of the U.S. selling weapons in, into hands that we shouldn't be, um, like the you know weapon sales that we have approved this year to Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, even while they are continuing to prosecute this war in Yemen that is one of the biggest ongoing humanitarian crises in the world. Um, so that's a problem, and then you know that is. Meanwhile, we see this, uh, we saw Brittany Griner, the, the WNBA player finally released from Russia, which was great news, um, but she was exchanged for um, this figure, Victor Boot, who's been called the merchant of death because he sold arms, but the US sells far more arms and we sell them into uh, hands that are just as uh, dangerous and causing just as many innocent deaths as Victor Boot ever did. Um, so this is what that Pentagon money is going to. It's going to subsidizing the system that is selling those arms and that is losing arms and having them end up in the wrong hands. And it's causing deaths and, and suffering of innocent people. Uh, and that's what that money is paying for. Yeah, I, I was going to raise with the Griner uh, situation that none of the mainstream media seem to be raising the point that you know, the United States is actually the biggest seller of, of weapons on the planet. So not the first time we've talked with the National Priorities Project about this issue. Uh, you know, what is the prospects of actually getting, you know, something done about this? As we all know, Dwight Eisenhower warned us about the power of the military industrial complex. And it just seems to be coming more powerful and it owns both political parties. What gives you optimism we can change this? Well, a, a couple of things. One is that we've done it before. You know, in the in the 1990s, we managed to cut the military spending in this country by more than a quarter. Um, and of course, those were different days. There were different circumstances, but but it is possible. And so that's one thing that gives me hope. Um, another thing is ongoing efforts to organize around this um, that are really taking some newer and interesting directions. There's um, the Poor People's Campaign, which is a fusion campaign that marries anti-poverty, anti-racism, um, anti-militarism, and anti-ecological anti devastation, excuse me, uh, those four things, and puts them all together and is organizing in places 
communities and among poor people who haven't been organized effectively in this country in a long time. So that gives me hope. There's a People Over Pentagon campaign that uh, has is right now sponsoring legislation that would cut the Pentagon budget by $100 billion and has growing support among progressives in Congress. So that gives me hope. Um, and there are other movements like um, like immigrant right movements and uh, racial justice movements that are also openly recognizing the devastation of militarism and our Pentagon around the world. And so all of that kind of gives me hope. And we, we know from polling that young people don't buy into US exceptionalism and the idea that the US military should be ruling the world. So that gives me hope too. Um, and I think between all of these things, we need to keep organizing and um, given enough time and enough persistence, I think we can out-organize even the military industrial complex. We've been talking with uh, Lindsay Kashkarian of the National Priorities Project. Lindsay, people want more information or even when they want to talk to their Congress people about this, how, how best can they get connected? They can find our website and information at nationalpriorities.org, um, which includes a way to contact your member of Congress. And you can even, uh, if you play around with some of our calculators, you can even find spending uh, budget figures that are relate, relate to your own congressional district. So nationalpriorities.org. Thank you very much, Lindsay. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We always said there's two things, um, definite life, um, birth and death, taxes going up. And unfortunately, we had to say the military budget going up. I'll just make a quick note that um, many people know that the effort by Senator Schumer and um, Senator Manchin to resurrect the so-called dirty deal uh, by attaching it to the National Defense Authorization Act was killed in the uh, House. Uh, and so therefore, it was assumed it was dead. But we have heard that Senator Schumer and Senator Manchin uh, early next week are going to bring it back up for a vote and try to attach the uh, dirty uh, climate deal uh, on permitting uh, to the uh, National Defense Authorization Act because everybody in Congress votes for that. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunley. And I'm Sally Becker. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, coworker, neighbor, media specialist. You can find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Up next, Hanukkah begins after sundown on Sunday, December 18th. Earlier in the day before the seven days of lights begin, the Capital Region will celebrate together at the second annual Hanukkah on Jay celebration. Joining us now is Rabbi Zalman Simon. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. So the celebration is taking place on Jay Street in Schenectady in front of City Hall. In C City Hall, excuse me. What will be taking place at the event? Well, it's a great large 
Hanukkah celebration where the entire community will be celebrating. There's a, a giant menorah will be lit, 12-foot menorah, together with many organizations, Jewish organizations, having various booths and activities. Uh, there will be live entertainment uh, with a DJ, Hanukkah treats, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. Is the is this twelve foot menorah twelve feet tall or is it twelve feet wide? How how do you go about lighting that? That's a great question. So it's twelve feet high, and um, it's it we'll put it together. It, it stands on uh, on the ground, and uh, there are torches on the top. There's uh, some menorahs you might find have uh, bulbs, but we're going to do it the traditional way, lighting the menorah with the blessings. And uh, with a torch, and um, we'll have someone from the community lighting, saying the blessings, and it will actually be lit during the uh, towards the end, actually, of the event. And what types of food and games will be at the event? So uh, each uh, booth will have very uh, different uh, organization will be running it, and so they're preparing those activities. But there's going to be, uh, like I said, a DJ, uh, BMX uh, a show. Uh, there's also a, a fire uh, fire show taking place. There's, uh, like I said, live entertainment. And then also food. There'll be traditional latkes, potato pancakes served with, with donuts and some other uh, uh, treats with, of course, uh, Hanukkah gelt, chocolate gelt, which are these uh, chocolate coins, which have now uh, become traditional uh, Hanukkah treats. So Christianity, you know, is the dominant culture, you know, in our country. And that has sort of, you know, led many people to characterize, you know, Hanukkah as the uh, Jewish Christmas. Why is that an incorrect characterization? Uh, and, but are there similarities between the two uh, celebrations? Well, I, I don't know about um, whether it's uh, mischaracterized or not, but I could speak to the fact that Hanukkah is the celebration of when the Jewish uh, people were oppressed uh, in Israel going back a couple of thousand years ago by the ancient Greeks. And uh, a small a group of Jewish uh, soldiers banded together, um, they really ad hoc, and were able to uh, be victorious over the very well-trained uh, Greek uh, military. And so that led to this tremendous uh, victory and celebration but also the Jewish people were finally able to go back to the temple um, where they had the candelabra, the menorah, which was a uh, something they did every single day. Um, and the problem was, many of us know the, the story or the miracle of Hanukkah, the problem was there wasn't a, uh, a flask of oil, pure olive oil. Um, and so they searched and finally were able to find one, one little bit of pure olive oil, and with that they lit the menorah. And miraculously, the menorah lit, uh, stayed lit for eight days, uh, eight nights and eight days, until they were able to get more oil. So the message, the message of Hanukkah is still relevant um, for, for, for all of us, really, not just for the Jewish community, but really for the entire world, where just a little bit, uh, a little candle, a little bit of light is able to do, uh, dispel a tremendous amount of darkness, have such a great impact and that's the reason why Hanukkah is unique in that it's a Jewish celebration that we do we have publicly. 
Uh, normally, celebrations are, are in our home, in the private of our home, but this celebration is unique that we put the menorah by the window or we celebrate in public spaces because it, the message is a universal message, not only for the Jewish people, but for, for, for the entire world. Recently, there's been a rise in anti-Semitism. Uh, have you seen any of that in the capital region? And what actions could the community take to help fight anti-Semitism? Yeah, so there there has been anti-Semitic um, uh, incidences locally. I, I don't uh, know whether that's an uptick or not. I, I haven't seen the numbers. But the reality is that there is hate in the world, um, much sometimes directed toward the Jewish community, other times directed to other other people. And so I think the message is that as long as we are positive, as long as we continue to have an impact in a positive way, it seemingly might even be insignificant, but by doing another favor for another person, by doing another good deed, it has a tremendous ripple effect, and it's able to influence people in a positive way and, and push back, push back on that hate. And I think that's something that we are able to actually do, um, and, and, and it's, it's tangible and it's real, and it's uh, very powerful. So we only have about a minute left. I'm going to ask a quick two-part question. I understand the event is being organized, um, maybe two minutes. The event is being organized by the Jewish Federation of Northeastern New York. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about that organization? And if people want to participate, find out more information uh, about your event, how best can they do that? Okay, great. So uh, the, the Jewish Federation uh, is a... Uh, a Jewish, a Jewish organization, which is um, really provides provides services to the Jewish community and supports the local organizations and uh, provides resources for the local synagogues, for the local JCCs, um, and other and other organizations. They're tremendous and vital in the community for the Jewish community and are really the backbone. Um, and so it's being put on by the Jewish Federation, also by the Capital Chabad Centers, and uh, over 25 other Jewish organizations, such as local synagogues, JCCs, and so on. And so it's a really a great show of the unity within our community. And um, and so it's it's a tremendous event, and I encourage everyone to to come on out. Hopefully the weather will be nice. I encourage you to come on out and celebrate together with us. There's more information on HanukkahOnJay.com, um, and also you're able to find information on Facebook and other social media outlets. But uh, HanukkahOnJay.com and all the details are there. So our engineer mentioned that I we actually probably have about a minute left or so. So maybe we can close up. What, what to you is the most important, you know, aspect or message of Hanukkah? Yeah, the, the, the most important aspect of Hanukkah, in my mind, is, as I mentioned before, really is the power, the power of doing another good deed. That's really the message of Hanukkah. Each night we light another candle. We go from one night to two candles, three candles, and so on. And so by doing so, we're increasing. We're increasing the light. It's typically the menorah's light when it's dark outside, and that's the message of Hanukkah. And what better way to celebrate the message of Hanukkah by coming together as a community, uh, as the entire the entire community coming together in front of City Hall in Schenectady, and 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 really 
showing the power of, of this message and the holiday of, of Hanukkah. Thank you so much, Rabbi Zalman Simon. And that event will take place Sunday, December 18th on J Street in Schenectady. Up next, Lori Dreyer, branch manager at the Lansingburg Public Library, overviews current activities and plans with 2020, for, for 2023 with Bria Barthel. Hi, it's Bria Barthel once again with Lori Dreyer, the manager of the Lansingburg branch of Troy Public Library, and she's got some really cool activities to tell us about. Lori, take it away. Hi, Bria. Thank you for having me. We do have some really great things happening at the library. As mentioned, I am the branch manager for the Lansingburg Library, so I'm a little biased, and I do mention the Lansingburg things first. So I'm going to tell you we have a story time uh, every Friday. It's at 9 a.m. We're just getting this started, and we are trying to get uh, more kids from the Tro from Troy, Lansingburg, and the surrounding areas who want to come in and join. It's an early literacy story time, ages zero to five. So come on down every Friday morning. Now you say you're getting it started. Has this met yet, or are you starting up in the new year? No, it's going. It's ongoing right now. Great. And what else? Uh, well, for other kids' programs, we are building on the popularity of brick builders at the main library. And now uh, for two Mondays a month, we have brick builders here at the Lansingburg branch at 3.30. So uh, you can come on down. There's um, a theme is given, but other than that, it, the structure is pretty much yours to make as you go. And all the works of art are put on display until the next meeting. And so you have all of the bricks here. People don't have to bring anything with them other than their creativity. Oh, goodness, Brea. We have so many Legos. So many Legos. Please come and make something from all the Legos we have. We have spaceships and trains and cars and lots of little men that all need places to sit. And caretakers, think of it this way. If they use the Legos and bricks here at the library, you won't be stepping on them in the middle of the night walking across the floor. That is true. <laughs> uh, um, so moving on to some adult programs, we are offering adult yoga every Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. It's a bring-your-own-mat situation. Um, and we are offering fibers in the morning and every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Fibers in the morning is a stitching group, um, and you can bring whatever craft you're working on. So for that, you do, participants do have to bring their own supplies. Yes. Uh, in general, people are bringing their own projects that they're working on. If you're making a scarf for somebody, uh, somebody's birthday is coming up, you're going you're gonna to knit them a blanket. Bring it on down with you. If you're cross-stitching or needle-pointing, bring it on down. How many people usually participate in that group? We've been getting about three or four regular participants, and we get a good conversation going. It's nice because it's in the morning, and Thursdays are quiet. And so you can come in, you can bring your coffee or your tea with a lid, and you can sit there, and uh, and we just all hang out and work on our projects. I'm in a occasional crafting uh, group and they talk about UFOs, unfinished objects. So uh, listeners, this is a chance to finish some of your UFOs. 
Yes, exactly. That is regularly a topic of conversation. Great. And what else is going on? Well, we have just recently started two book clubs, which I think is really exciting because I get to participate in both. Uh, one of them is a contemporary fiction book group. The next meeting for that is going, going to be December 28th. That's a Wednesday at 2 p.m. And we are discussing Anxious People by Frederick Backman, which was just recently turned into a television show. So you can come and talk about the book or the television show. Do you have to be anxious while you're talking about it? I certainly hope not. Okay, so that that is the, what did you call it, the, the book club? Contemporary Fiction Book Group. Great. And then another fiction book club? Yes, this one is fiction as well, but it is more focused on mysteries. Uh, so, yes, which is a popular topic. Um, and we are meeting on January 3rd at 5.30 p.m. We're going to be talking about A Stranger in the House by Sherry LaPena. But we're also talking about any other mystery books that you find interesting. This one's a little more loose. Um, everybody comes who's a mystery lover, and they like to talk about their favorite series, their favorite mystery authors. And that's great. I love getting suggestions on different things, uh, different books to talk about. Okay, so we've got mystery books and adults. I'm still playing, uh, contemporary fiction. Yes. Okay, and you have something else going on. Well, and I wanted to talk a little bit about how we choose the books. Um, every meeting for the book clubs, for both book clubs, I choose a handful of books and I bring them in with a little description and everyone gets to vote on it. So it's not, it's very democratic. If you are sick of reading books that you don't like, this gives you some options um, without giving you, you know, all the options in the library because that might be a little overwhelming. <laughs> Great. And anything else? Yes. Um, so this is very exciting. We have an employee here named Ernst, who is wonderful. And he is a big fan of Dungeons and Dragons. And so we are, or he has submitted a proposal to get a Dungeons and Dragons group going. This would be uh, for older teens or adults. It would take place here in the library. Ernst would act as dungeon master and we would have all the supplies available, including some snacks. Uh, so if anybody is interested, we don't yet have a date and time. We want to do this after the start of the, the new year. Uh, so if you're interested, go ahead and stop by the Lansingburg branch of the library. That sounds great. And speaking of games, that's a multiple role-playing game. But in the the upstairs room that we're tape recording in, I see a st st two stacks of games, Picture Rica, Monopoly, Checkers, Chess, Tic-Tac-Toe, I Spy, Eagle Eye. Tell me about the games. Are those available for borrow or is that for using here? How do those work? The games are here uh, for people to use in the library. Oftentimes, they are used by a group that comes in um, known as Tutor Time. It's a group that we partner with at RPI. They're actually going to be starting back up with in-person tutoring on the 21st of January. Um, so you can go on our website and see when they'll be here. And if you want to come in and play some games, you can come in while they're here, and they'll be happy to play games with you. And that's at the Lansingburg Band. Blah, Lansingburg branch of the Troy Public Library. And for information, the website is www.thetroylibrary.com.
www.ncpsa.org. So we're recording this in uh, mid to late December, and this is a time for looking back and looking forward. What are some of the highlights of 2022 for the library and for you? So as you know, 2022 was my first full year as the branch manager here at the Lansingburg Library. And I have to say our summer reading program was so much fun. We had a great group of kids come in who wanted to participate. We had fun events like our kickoff party. We had reptiles come and visit the library. We had puppets. Uh, and then, of course, we had Big Truck Day, which was a huge hit. Uh, and so I just I am so looking forward to next summer and getting to do that again. And speaking of next summer, with the uh, change of the year, do you have resolutions or plans for new activities in 2023? Oh, Bria, I have so many plans. <laughs> Listeners, it's. I'm sorry you can't see her face and the glow in her eyes as she says that. So yeah, we are looking at different things uh, that I would like to do, things that um, we're hearing from community members. If there are community members out there who are looking for particular programs, please stop by and let us know. We are absolutely open to providing programming that is requested by our community. Uh, But I'm a big gardener, so I'm really looking forward to spring and getting some more gardening programs going. Now, when you say getting more gardening programs going, what kind of gardening programs have you done in the past or are you thinking of doing? Again, you ha- I'm so sorry you can't see her face. She is getting excited. <laughs> well, I love it. It's so fun. Okay. Uh, so we are, I would love to have something where we can talk about um, composting and sustainable gardening and just being able, like if you have a small yard or a large yard, what kind of gardening you can do. Uh, native plant gardening. Um, And then we'd also like to start, ideally, we'd like to start a seed library uh, eventually. So I don't know if that'll be this year, but it's certainly on my radar. Okay. And that radar is for Lori Dreyer, branch manager of the Troy Public Library's Lansingburg branch. And this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Lori, thanks so much for taking time to talk with me. Thank you so much for coming, Bria. Have a great holiday, and listeners, I hope that you have a great holiday, whatever ones you're celebrating. So that was uh, Lori Dreyer, branch manager of the uh, Landenberg uh, Public Library. And as we mentioned, uh, for more details, you can uh, visit www.thetroylibrary.org. And I was looking forward to interviewing Cena about what's going on in the sanctuary for the next two weeks with our radio station. But I understand that our guest has joined up. This is the uh, holiday season, of course, and organizations give back with holiday events for the community. And that includes Saratoga Black Lives Matter, which is working with the Hudson Caskill Housing Coalition to present events in Hudson, Albany, Saratoga Springs, and Caskill. On the line with us now is Lexis Figueroa uh, to tell us more. Uh, Welcome, Lexis. Thank you. Thank you. So can you tell us why, what is the uh, Books and Lunch and, and why is uh, Black Lives Matter helping to launch this? Um, yes, um, our Books and Lunch program actually uh, takes after the Black Panthers Party um, Books and Breakfast program. Um, so we're not emulating it, but, you know, trying to grow with what they did. Um, so now we're trying to give out uh, 
not for say just radical books, but books that are more inclusive um, and books that have equity in them actually and like include everybody. So we're giving our books to children um, and we're encouraging them to come back to our next Books and Breakfast, which will be <clears throat> a few weeks from then, maybe a month, depending on how this one goes. This is our test run to see how it goes out here. Uh, we actually do this program in a bunch of different entities all throughout New York State um, and actually all throughout the country and even in Jamaica. Um, and we're actually going to be doing one in Brazil um, in January. So we're doing uh, we're expanding this program all over the place. Um, and it also is a way for the community to come together, uh, eat together. We provide uh, nutritional foods uh, for the children and parents. Um, and, you know, our goal is to eventually have it to where <clears throat> we have the children in a certain space and they're reading children's books. And we have the parents go in a different space and read adult books and speak about different current activities that are going on in our communities. Um, again, people's inputs on, you know, what, what's going on, uh, what, what they want to see changed. Um, we also, sorry, we're also uh, have, we have uh, guest authors um, and that's what we're trying to do. We're bringing authors, black authors, um, primarily not just black people, but um, we are trying to bring people who aren't normally in the spotlight um, to our events um, to showcase their books, um, to show the community. So you mentioned some authors um, and we saw that you have special guest author, Marcus Quam, excuse my mispronunciation, but what kind of books is he known for? Uh, Marcus Kwame, uh, I would say the the book that I've seen that he's most known for, I believe, is a Black Panther uh, comic book. Um, he actually wrote a whole, um, not not Black Panther, the character, but the Black Panther Party. Uh, he wrote a whole comic book um, that's geared towards teenagers and young adults um, that literally illustrates it in comic style so that they can understand more um, of exactly what was going on um, back then and what we're doing now in the future. So what is in this, especially in an age of digital and internet, how is, what, or why is it important for kids to have access to books, especially these uh, books? It's very, very important um, so that they can have a, you know, a wider view of uh, things that are going around them. Uh, you know, there's kids, this is, once again, it's not just for black kids, it's for Caucasian kids as well, uh, who may not have a lot of black friends or read any black books. It's a chance for us to bring them into this world um, and, you know, sh share, share things, you know, and learn things from each other. Um, that's one of the most important things. I also think that is very important because in this area, even when I was a young child, I used to have to, I lived in Saratoga, obviously, I had to drive to Schenectady and Troy to their libraries to try to get a book that was reaching out to me to see characters that look like me and talk like me. Um, so, you know, we, we're trying to bring that to Saratoga and other entities where there it's not available um, so that we have, they have that. So, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of a different, older generation, um, but I actually, my first political awareness was with the uh, Black Panther Party uh, in the late 60s. And I got to that by, uh, in high school, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X and read about Huey Newton. I think it was Soul on Ice. And I had some friends who were colleagues with Fred Hampton Jr. Or any of those old books going to be part of the uh, Book and Lunch uh, program? Of course they are. Uh, we have tons of books um, from all types of authors, from old school to new school. Um, so we have a little bit of everything. We have books from Coretta Scott King. We have books from Malcolm X. Uh, we have a lot of stuff. Black Panther Party. Um, who else? Uh, Shirley Chisholm. Um, a lot of different people. So we are. So wh where will the program, you know, go from, from here? How often will it take place? And it seems like you have a, a number of different events. How can people best find out, you know, where those different events are and the times and everything? 
Yep, the best way to find out the events and where we're going to be at uh, is on Saratoga Black Lives Matter um, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter as well. Um, and you can also uh, look on Hudson Caskill Housing Coalition's website and their page as well. And we will be in Saratoga Springs um, at the uh, Recreation Center right next to the Terrace Housing from 1130 to 230 p.m. on Saturday morning. And understand you can get some uh, holiday uh, photos, uh, including family portraits uh, at that particular event. You can. Um, so we're going to be having uh, earlier in the day, Marcus Kwame is going to come there at 1. Uh, we're going to start at 11, 1130 um, doing pictures. We have a professional photographer coming up. Uh, he's going to have a backdrop set up. We're going to take pictures to families for free um, and give them the copies of the photos all for free um, in, a, in a way to you know give back to the community. I uh, understand a family should pre-register at least for the holiday photos. Um, it would be nice for people to pre-register so we get a gist of how many people to expect. Um, but in all actuality, if you don't have a computer or you can't you can't get on there, uh, just show up um, and, you know, we'll take care of you. So since we're in the last couple weeks of 2022, how would you characterize this year for Saratoga Black Lives Matter? And what are some notable events that marked this year? Um, I would have to say, uh, I would say that we have evolved um, our protest and the way that we move um, and our activism. Uh, some of the events that I'm very proud of is our Daryl Mount event for Shine a Light, which we do for Daryl Mount, who, is, uh, who we believe was murdered by Saratoga Springs Police Department. Um, and we also did a event for George Floyd um, at, at the same exact time that the Buffalo shootings happened. Uh, we did a die-in in the middle of the streets in um, Broadway. Uh, that was a very powerful event uh, because... Even people who don't respect Black Lives Matter, uh, they respected that we we're out there for people who got murdered um, senselessly. Um, so, you know, that was a very powerful thing. Uh, and the only the other thing that I could say that we did was, uh, you know, we got into a little bit of lobbying and things like that um, in, at, at the state Senate, which we're not normally used to doing. Uh, we normally at city council meetings, but, you know, we've been showing up at the state capitol um, pushing for a change. Well, well, speaking of pushing for a change, uh, one of the I guess you're participating in this partly as a um, maybe statewide effort with the Hudson Capskill Housing Coalition. Um, for those who may not have heard about them, you know, what, what do they do and why is you guys involved with them? All right. Um, so I work for Hudson Capskill Housing Coalition. I'm actually <laughs> the Capital Region Outreach Coordinator um, for, Cap for HCHC, actually. Um, and, you know, we mostly focus on housing justice, uh, tenants rights, organizing tenants, things like that. But we also look at social justice things. Uh, we are working on currently a bill called Clean Slate in which people who are formerly incarcerated get a second chance at life. Um, after doing their time, seven years after getting off of probation or parole, they're able to get a felony sealed. Um, and for a misdemeanor, three years after probation completed without getting any crimes, um, they are allowed to get their record sealed as well. Uh, it does not include sexual crimes and things of that nature. Um, but, you know, we, so these are some of the things that we're working on that are big things um, that we're working on together. So that was a, a, a great book list. Um, are any of these readings actually a part of our school education, like in Saratoga? And how would you like to see, you know, what, you know, children, uh, young adults are reading uh, in the general school system to, you know, be a little bit more... Um, I don't know, reflective of, of, of Black culture and history and literature and so forth. For sure. Um, you know, 
us personally, Saratoga Black Lives Matter, we have been involved with the school board meetings and things like that. Uh, you know, so we we have members who show up at pretty much every school board meeting, uh, voice their opinions about things as far as why it's important or it isn't important for them to have books that are inclusive and equ equitable. Um, it's very, very important uh, for the, exactly the same reason what I said that I had to go to different places to be able to find books that were speaking to me. Um, you know, I didn't really care for a lot of the books when I was a young man because I didn't feel like that was me. Um, so it had nothing to do with me. Um, so I don't want kids to be feeling like that. And, you know, we shouldn't have to be that way um, in 2022. Like, let's get it together. Let's get with the times. Um, you know, it's all about inclusivity um, and equity. You know, just sort of our last question, maybe a little bit of a topic, but, you know, honestly, there has been this sort of this big Black Lives, not Black Lives Matters, um, defund the police movement. And so we've just been going through the various city council budgets in the Capital District. Uh, I know they gave a little bit more money to uh, the City of Albany Civilian Police Review Board. But, you know, in the Capital District, has there been much uh, commitment by elected officials to at least reprogram, you know, more of the police budget to support uh, neighborhood services and uh, mental health services and community intervention? Um, absolutely not. Uh, we've seen the exact opposite. You know, we see uh, jurisdictions and places getting even more funding than ever um, in a time like this. You know, we know that people, especially since the pandemic, mental health issues is like number one of things that people are dealing with right now in life. Uh, and we we have an answer for that. Uh, we are actually going to be pushing for a uh, for a um, community response team uh, to actually deal with um, non-emergency situations, as well as situations dealing with overdoses, mental health situations. We want um, professionals to deal with this, not police officers with guns and badges. So. I, 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 I believe we're running out of time. So if people, uh, a lot of your events are taking place on December 13th, also down in Hudson on December 16th. If people want that more information, follow Black Lives Matter, Housing Coalition. Uh, how best can they do that in 25 seconds? Uh, in 25 seconds, uh, you can just type, type in Saratoga Black Lives Matter um, on your Instagram or your uh, Twitter, Facebook, all that. Um, and for, same thing for Hudson Catskill Housing Coalition. Um, just look us up and we'll be there. Uh, you can also email us anytime our email and all that stuff and link trees are on our page. Um, so it's easy to get all the information about things we have going on currently. So, Alexis, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Bye bye. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sally Becker. I'm Mark Dunley, engineer with uh, Cena Basila Hickey. Want to thank all those who made this event possible today, uh, particularly Sally and Briere. Uh, Barthel. Uh, tune in weekdays, 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. Um, you can also listen on mediacentury.org, uh, which has all the food episodes. Uh, we appreciate your listening. Until next time. <laughs>